Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, ko William Ray Aho, kei te whakarongo mai koe ki te hibipango. Hi there, I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. It's January 22nd, 1882, and we're sitting at a meeting of the Wellington Philosophical Society. Sorry, it's all hard wooden chairs, but do your best to make yourself comfy. The society is like a special club for scientists. It's where they got together to discuss the latest scientific thinking and present their own research. You'd often have politicians and other bigwigs there to listen as well. And right now, the audience is about to hear from Dr. Alfred Newman. Newman is 33 years old. He has a smooth, round face with a carefully trimmed moustache, and he obviously thinks he has something exciting to say. You can almost feel the energy radiating off him. The increase or decrease of a race living in our midst must necessarily be a subject of vital interest to each of us, and a study of the causes leading to such change is, I think, worthy of investigation. That the Maoris as a whole are very rapidly decreasing needs but little proof. Everyone who has lived long in the colony must admit the fact. Newman's right. All the audience are aware that over the last few decades, the Māori population has been falling. In fact, Newman says, since the time James Cook turned up in Aotearoa in 1769, it was estimated the Māori population had dropped from somewhere around 100 to 120,000 people to less than 50,000. Newman admitted that census data was patchy and the exact numbers were hard to pin down, and even today there's some uncertainty about population numbers in the 19th century. But Newman argued the overall trend was obvious. Here, within a five-mile radius of this very lecture room, since this colony was founded exactly 42 years ago, see how the Maoris have disappeared. There are now, within that area, only 37. There were, 42 years ago, a pa at Nga Hauranga, one at Kaiwara. He probably meant Ngauranga and Kaiwharawhara, just by the way. A few families living near the site of Dr. Featherston's house, a few at Mr. Izzard's, about 50 people... At this point, some of the crowd was nodding along, but for others, maybe their eyes were glazing a little. Newman wasn't saying anything new. Sure, we know the Māori population is declining, they might have thought to themselves. The question is, why? Well, Newman thought he had an answer. The races of mankind, like individuals, have their birth, their period of growth. Some are fertile and give birth to other races. Some races are sterile, merely propagating themselves for a time. But in either case, invariably, like individuals beginning to die and then becoming extinct. The Maori race is run out. It is effete seems thoroughly worn out, and its approaching death has been hastened by the struggles with a newer and fresher race. By this point, you've probably guessed how the rest of Dr Alfred Newman's lecture is going to go. It's social Darwinism, scientific racism, white supremacy, a bunch of old tropes about a supposedly savage indigenous people who melt away when contacted by supposedly civilised Europeans. I have to admit, we've been a bit reluctant to talk about Alfred Newman on Black Sheep. I read his 1882 lecture last year and thought to myself, well, that's horrifying, but 
what's the point of digging into the life story of this particular 19th century racist? They're not exactly rare in this era of New Zealand history. But then I read a bit more about Newman, talked to some historians, and things got pretty weird. First weird thing. Even though these ideas of Māori inferiority were pretty popular among Pākehā, Newman's 1882 lecture got absolutely slammed by some of the most senior figures in the New Zealand scientific community. That seemed a bit odd. Then I found out that when Newman became a politician a few years later, he actually took some fairly pro-Māori positions, arguing for reform of the Native Land Court and more government-funded medical treatment for Māori. Again, unexpected. Doesn't fit the mould of a stereotypical 19th century racist. Then, decades after his 1882 paper, Newman started arguing that instead of being simple quote-unquote savages, Māori were in fact descended from an Aryan master race. Like I said, things got pretty weird. It turns out Alfred Newman's story intersects with all sorts of strange, seemingly contradictory aspects of racial thinking in 19th and early 20th century New Zealand, and indeed all around the world. In the end, we decided Alfred Newman's story was worth telling. Not just because he was a nasty racist, although he definitely was a nasty racist, it's because his story tells a wider story about scientific racism in Aotearoa. And it's a more complex and frankly fascinating story than I initially realised, and probably more interesting than those people in the Philosophical Society meeting might have realised as they wandered out of the auditorium. Anyway, before we get talking about Alfred Newman, we need to wind back and look at where scientific racism got started. Because as tempting as it is to assume racists like Newman have always existed, a lot of historians don't think that's the case. Racism is quite a new way of thinking and and looking at the world. So prior to um, the 1700s, really, people thought that, you know, if you had darker skin, it was because you lived in a hotter climate. And so if you moved that person to a colder zone, then their skin would change colour over a few generations. Like They didn't actually have a a concept of people being fundamentally different um, in a way that could categorise based on how they appeared. This is Dr. Aramarata. She's an independent researcher with a group called Working to End Racism and Depression. Widow for short. And as Dr. Rata says, back in the olden days, say around the Middle Ages, Europeans didn't really discriminate based on skin colour. Instead, they tended to discriminate based on religion. That attitude started to change around the late 17th century with the so-called Age of Enlightenment, when Europeans increasingly looked for scientific ways of explaining the world. That included explaining why it was okay to enslave or colonise other groups of people. There needed to be like a new organising principle for that power to justify social relations and justify exploitation, and it needed to have some kind of air of scientific rigour. And so that's why these scientifically racist ideas started to um, have appeal and have value. Racial science was taken extremely seriously by the intellectual classes. People created elaborate hierarchies and classification systems for different ethnicities. Many scientific racists were more than comfortable making sweeping generalisations based on ethnicity. For example, one scientist who visited Aotearoa in the 1830s made this comparison between Māori and Tahitians. Amongst the New Zealand natives, there is absent that charming simplicity which has found that Tahiti. One is a savage, the other a civilised man. That quote comes from a guy you might have heard of, Charles Darwin. He wrote it in his journal when the Beagle visited Kororarika in the Bay of Islands around Christmas 1835. It's almost comical to read that because we know that Tahitians are our kin, that we're very, very closely related. Um, And so this idea that that Darwin is putting forward that, you know, that we can divide man into those who are civilised and those that are savage um, and that there is some kind of difference between Tahitians and Māori is, um, is ludicrous. Darwin didn't say how natural selection might apply to humans and the origin of species. 
but some readers took his idea of survival of the fittest very literally when it came to race relations. People kind of took that on board to suggest that um, if I kill you, I must be superior to you, right? (laughs) And that was never what Darwin was saying. British colonists in Aotearoa were often quite fond of this more ruthless interpretation of Darwin's theories. And as Otago University historian John Stenhouse explains, that's partly because the first copies of The Origin of Species reached New Zealand in 1860, just as the most intense phase of the New Zealand wars was getting underway. The full title of the book is, of course, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or, here's the subtitle, The Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. It seemed to quite a few people who read The Origin in the 1860s as the wars were raging that, well, as an Auckland journalist writing in the Southern Monthly magazine said, no one can deny Darwin's struggle for existence or, he says, that a weak and ill-furnished race must give way before one which is strong and highly endowed. And, of course, he was speaking about Māori and the the British. That was the kind of thing that was being said in the 1860s quite some time before Newman read his now notorious lecture. Part of the reason this whole survival of the fittest meme became such a potent idea in 19th century racial science is because it helped explain a mystery. Why did large indigenous populations in places like the Americas and Pacific Islands seem to suddenly collapse shortly after the arrival of Europeans? You've got to remember, in those days, nobody understood that thousands of years of pestilence and plague had given Europeans a degree of natural immunity to a bunch of deadly diseases and that indigenous populations often lacked this immunity. So for a long time, the only explanation was a religious one. As an early American colonist called Daniel Denton famously put it back in 1670, Where the English come to settle, a divine hand makes way for them by removing or cutting off the Indians by some raging mortal disease. But again, with the Age of Enlightenment, there's the addition of scientific justifications, or pseudoscientific if you want to put it that way. So people who might have previously talked about a divine hand sweeping away indigenous people started talking about natural laws and survival of the fittest. As you might imagine, indigenous people, including Māori, did not put much stock in these ideas. Very clever and wise chiefs like Wurumu Tamihana, who already in the 1850s is taking aim at the doomed native theory. He's saying, uh, you know, no, 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 that's nasty wishful thinking. We may be declining. That's not to say we're doomed. And as Professor Stenhouse points out, some Europeans had similar criticisms about the idea that Māori were doomed to extinction, especially missionaries and some senior church figures. For example, the Anglican Bishop of New Zealand, George Selwyn, sent a very pointed letter to his mate William Gladstone, who'd go on to be a very famous British Prime Minister. And he says, look, I'm, I'm going to do what I can as Bishop of New Zealand to take care that, that none of the damnable crimes and indifference by which white settlers try and justify their bad treatment of indigenous people gets cloaked as a law of nature uh, or a decree of providence. In other words, he doesn't buy the idea that the disappearance of native races is some kind of inexorable law of nature. People like Bishop Selwyn did sometimes stick up for Māori interests, and other colonists found that absolutely infuriating. They came up with a label for Selwyn and his supporters. They called them the church party. And it's almost a swear word. They basically say, look, it's just wrong. It's absurd and dangerous to have one-eyed, fanatical, Māori-loving church leaders interfering in politics. Religion has no place in politics. We must simply um, ignore them. 
and Parliament pass uh, some pretty uh, brutal uh, legislation confiscating huge areas of Māori land, not only from those who fought against the government, but but even from so-called friendlies. It's a bit of an uncomfortable origin story for New Zealand's proud secular tradition. Anyway, thanks for sticking with me through that crash course on the history of scientific racism. Now it's time to reintroduce our black sheep, Dr Alfred Newman. Alfred Newman was born in India in 1849. His father commanded a ship for the East India Company, but we don't really know much about his parents, aside from the fact that they migrated from India to New Zealand in 1843 to become sheep farmers. Alfred was just four years old. Alfred lived on the family farm in Hawke's Bay for a few years before being shipped off to boarding school in Auckland. He must have shown some promise as a student because in 1863, when Alfred was in his early teens, he was sent to England to study as a doctor. It was an interesting time to be a medical student. Up until the 1860s, the English scientific establishment had been closely linked to the Anglican Church. But some church leaders thought Charles Darwin's theories of evolution were a direct challenge to the biblical account of creation, and that drove a deep wedge into the relationship between religion and science. This kick-started what some have described as a war between science and religion in Britain. And as a hot-headed young medical student in his teens and early 20s, Newman came down hard on the side of science. He was a particularly big fan of a controversial group of doctors and scientists known as medical materialists. They make themselves sort of famous in some circles and notorious in others by arguing that there's no God, you know, none of that nonsense. Reality consists exclusively of matter and force, and that's it. Basically, Newman became an atheist. Nothing unusual by today's standards, but back in those days, publicly arguing for atheism was pretty transgressive, and the medical materialists were more explicit than most. They say things like, the brain secretes thought as the kidneys secrete urine. It was certainly enough to make headlines in its day. Newman finished up his medical training and returned to Aotearoa in 1875. He was 26 years old and brimming with enthusiasm to share all the radical ideas he'd learned in England. And how does he do this? Well, the way lots of people shared new and exciting ideas in those days, by presenting papers at his local philosophical society. The societies were provincial organisations set up as local branches of the New Zealand Institute. The Institute was a national scientific organisation which eventually evolved into the modern-day Royal Society of New Zealand. Within a year of arriving back in New Zealand, Newman was ready to present the Wellington Society with his first paper. This was Newman's first foray into racial science since his return to New Zealand. And funnily enough, instead of claiming Māori were a decadent race doomed to extinction, In this earlier lecture, he said it was English settlers who were at risk of decay. Why? Well, basically the weather. First, he pointed to the risks of what he said was New Zealand's relatively low air pressure. This lessened pressure will slightly change the cerebral circulation and will therefore also slightly affect the immigrants' thinking powers. But the deadliest thing about this country, Newman argued was the temperature. Aotearoa wasn't very cold, and it also wasn't very hot. Instead, it was very, well, mild. The monotony of the climate, its freedom from great extremes of heat and cold, is an unfortunate thing, for frost and snow alternating with summer sultriness stimulates men's bodies. The outcome of all this, Newman claimed, was plain to see. The New Zealand and colonial youth and young man is physically and mentally weaker than persons of similar age at home. They are less robust. Hard work and privations soon affect them. The individuals are often, as they say, seedy, Any attack of disease quickly prostrates them, 
and the recoveries are tardy. The women fade, become old and haggard after rearing a small family. Like the males, they early bloom and quickly fade. A number of the heavyweights in the Wellington Philosophical Society just simply don't believe him. And I do think that that paper get him a reputation as a sort of a, a radical young hothead who is too inclined to play fast and loose with the facts. With this reputation, you might be wondering, how the hell did this guy ever find a job as a doctor, let alone a scientist? Well, he didn't. Like a number of other qualified medical doctors, he doesn't actually make his living practicing medicine. So he goes into business. Possibly he thinks that he can make more money in business. I think he's clearly an ambitious young fellow. One of the places you might be able to see that ambition is a few years later, in 1879, when Newman marries Octavia Featherston, daughter of a prominent colonial politician, the late Isaac Featherston. Marrying into such a wealthy, well-connected family might be a hint that Alfred Newman was looking at a future in politics. Maybe it also helped restore his reputation with the Wellington Philosophical Society because the same year he married Octavia, he was also elected president of the society. But pretty much as soon as he became president, Newman launched into another controversial public lecture. <clears throat> the brain in relation to the mind. And he basically says, look, brain size is really crucial because there's a direct connection between brain size and intellectual ability. And he basically uh, outlines a racial hierarchy. He says the big brain Englishman is at the top. The French and Germans are right up there. Other races are somewhere below. And at the bottom are South Sea Islanders and I think he says Australian Aboriginals. And he argues that female brains are on the whole smaller than male brains and therefore women can't really compete with men um, uh, mentally. Okay, so these sorts of arguments about big brains equaling more intelligence were pretty common among scientific racists. But the part about women having smaller brains and less intelligence is actually a bit weird coming from Newman. Because at the same time he gave that lecture, Newman was campaigning for women's rights to vote and stand for Parliament. Why would he do that if he thought women were all small-brained morons? Well, uh, I think the answer is, while he thinks that women aren't the equal of men intellectually, they are at least the equal of men morally. And on that basis, they should, they should get the vote. And what were these moral issues Newman thought we needed women to vote on? In a word, alcohol. Like many suffragists, Newman was a devoted prohibitionist. Anyway, Newman's lecture of the brain in relation to the mind infuriated scientific authorities. Just like his previous speech, he made all kinds of sweeping claims based on dubious evidence. Sir James Hector, the big boss of New Zealand science in this era, refused to publish the lecture in the Transactions and Proceedings of the New Zealand Institute. In 19th century New Zealand scientific circles, that was a pretty big snub. But Newman wasn't about to let criticism from the likes of James Hector stop him from speaking his mind. Which brings us to that infamous lecture in 1882. <clears throat> A study of the causes leading to the extinction of the Maori. It's actually kind of hard to summarise Newman's arguments in this paper because at various points he contradicts himself. Like at one point he makes an argument which wouldn't sound out of place today. He puts the blame on introduced diseases like measles, influenza, scarlet fever. The imported diseases have, of course, been very powerful agents in bringing about the decrease in the race. But then towards the end of his paper, he says these diseases contributed to depopulation only in a small degree. At one point, he points to malnutrition, saying, Most Maori children look badly fed, big-bellied with wasted limbs. But then he says Maori are eating too much. 
The abundance of easily got food, which they now have in regular supply, has led to a state of fatness and general plethora, which, as in all the lower animals, leads to a lessened fertility. He starts by suggesting the decline of the Māori population as something important. A subject of vital interest to each of us. But then he ends his lecture with this. The disappearance of the race is scarcely subject for much regret. They are dying out in a quick, easy way and are being supplanted by a superior race. And yeah, that line in particular just... It really, really sucks. I don't know what else to say about it. If I had to summarise Newman's argument in spite of all the contradictions, I guess I'd put it like this. Alfred Newman says Māori people are going extinct and the only ones to blame are Māori themselves. He admits that Pākehā caused some deaths through war and introduced diseases, but he claims this paled in comparison to the benefits he says they brought. And he basically depicts colonisation as a blessing for Māori, but a blessing that they sort of make the worst of. At this point, you're probably wondering where the hell is Newman getting these crazy ideas from? He's not working as a doctor, so presumably it's not based on a deep experience of treating Māori patients. And while he does quote experts and statistics in places, some of his more radical claims aren't backed up by anything. It's just his own reckons. Plus, there are so many sort of half-facts, things which have an element of truth, but he twists them out of context. Like, for example, the factor Newman blames above all for Māori depopulation is living conditions. The soil all around their fares is often spongy with retained water and decaying organic matter. Even the floor of their huts is frequently damp. In very many cases, it would have been quite impossible for them to have chosen worse or more unhealthy sites for their dwellings. Now, it's certainly true that poor living conditions killed a lot of Māori in the late 19th century. But the thing is, Māori were not always choosing to live in these places. Before European arrival, hapū might camp near a wetland to gather food or harvest flax. But by the late 19th century, many Māori communities were being forced to live in these areas pretty much permanently because the land they used to live on had been taken by Europeans. Nowhere in his paper does Newman mention the impact of land loss on Māori. And that omission might explain why he chose to write this paper in the first place. This wasn't just science. This was also, to some degree, a sort of a political campaign speech in which he reassured the settlers that actually the Maori race was disappearing before we came here and we really didn't have anything to do with it. A year before Alfred Newman gave his lecture in 1882, he unsuccessfully stood for Parliament. Two years later, in 1884, he would win the Thorndon seat. So, like John Stenhouse says, you can read his paper as a campaign speech, or, as Professor Stenhouse argued in his PhD thesis, a kind of pseudo-scientific sermon. Here's how he puts it. I'll just read it for you. Newman, high priest of the church scientific, sought to relieve Pākehā souls by assuring his fellows that they bore no responsibility for Māori extinction. The paper pronounced a general absolution on colonisation. But here's the thing. While Newman's secular sermon might have converted some votes in his direction, it didn't have the same effect on the scientific establishment. And it got him into trouble with the most powerful government scientist of the 19th century, uh, James Hector, who criticised his paper on both empirical and kind of moral and political grounds. Basically, um, Hector says, look, you've got 
too many of your facts wrong. It's just not the case that Maori are dying out everywhere we look. And furthermore, he says, look, you're attempting to basically whitewash us. From what I can tell, uh, Hector doesn't normally criticise a colleague in the Wellington Philosophical Society as strongly as he does Newman. So here you might be thinking, wow, so James Hector and his mates sound like pretty good dudes, sticking up for Māori, calling out bad science. Not so fast. Because other scientists were saying very similar stuff to Dr Alfred Newman and not getting anything like the same criticism. Maybe the best example came from a lecture delivered by Dr Walter Buller in 1884. Buller's comments on the Māori population were summed up like this in the transactions and proceedings of the New Zealand Institute. That the Māori race was doomed, Buller had no doubt whatever in his own mind. The Aboriginal race must in time give place to a more highly organised, or at any rate, a more civilised one. Now to me, Buller and Newman's lectures sound almost indistinguishable, as do several other lectures in this era which say similar things about Māori. And John Stenhouse says Buller actually did face some of the same criticisms Newman got from a handful of politicians. Including an ex-premier who think that he's speculating beyond what the evidence really indicates. But the fascinating thing about the Buller paper is that whereas James Hector has come down hard on Newman... Just two years earlier, this time, he intervenes in the discussion and he supports Buller against his critics. But that begs the question, why was Newman's lecture seen as so objectionable to Hector and his allies when Buller's wasn't? Well, John Stenhouse says there are probably two explanations. First, Sir James Hector seems to have quite liked and respected Walter Buller as a scientist. Alfred Newman... Maybe not so much. Buller hasn't developed the kind of reputation that Newman develops as a sort of a speculative materialist who goes way beyond the facts. Buller's scientific reputation is not as checkered as Newman's. Probably the biggest point Hector and his allies disagreed with Newman on was when the decline in Māori population had started. Newman claimed, The Māoris were a disappearing race before we came here. James Hector thought that was absolute rubbish, and he stood up and said so immediately after Newman finished his lecture in 1882. There appears to be no reason why the Māori race should have decayed if it had been left alone or gradually assimilated to our own, and it is no use trying to excuse ourselves. So... Hector and his allies objected to this attempt to whitewash colonisation. And they may also have objected to Newman's language. Especially those final two sentences where he says the extinction of Māori is scarcely a subject for much regret. I think that Newman's problem was that in the context of the scientific society in which he expressed these views, he was putting things a bit too crudely. Rather than saying the extinction of Māori was scarcely a subject for much regret, Buller and others did articulate some need for compassion. Although this was articulated in language which was still pretty horrific, Buller quoted Newman's father-in-law, Isaac Featherston, saying, The Māoris are dying out and nothing can save them. Our plain duty as good, compassionate colonists is to smooth down their dying pillow then history will have nothing to reproach us with. Now, personally, I think Buller's framing of compassionate settlers smoothing down the pillow of dying Māori comes across as more sinister than Newman's more upfront racism. But it seems to have been more palatable to the likes of Sir James Hector. But as Dr Aramarata points out, both Buller and Newman's lectures served the same purpose making Pākehā feel more comfortable about taking control of the country and the tens of thousands of Māori who died in the process. There's a really popular misconception about racism that in order for something to be racist, 
that it has to be mean or vindictive and that it has to be illogical. So people think that racism is this illogical dislike for certain races. But racism is often very friendly. It often sounds very well-meaning. There is this system in place that benefits people from, from racism, so it's not illogical, and it often is kind of couched in very sweet, paternalistic, you know, white saviour-like terms. I'm going to speculate for a second here. It might just be that Alfred Newman listened to Walter Buller's lecture, watched him step down from his podium, take his seat amid applause from all the scientific political bigwigs, and had a bit of a revelation. Despite his attraction to radical theories, I think Newman might have craved the approval of New Zealand's intellectual elite. He wanted to be the one who was applauded and backslapped and all that other good stuff. He may have realised that his more blatantly cruel language about Māori simply wasn't acceptable to the scientific establishment. And that might explain why from 1884 onward, after Alfred Newman was elected to Parliament, he adopted a different approach to Māori. When he first started researching Newman, John Stenhouse went digging through the archives of Newman's voting and debating records. Just between you and me, I kind of hoped that I had a real nasty racist, um, a, a real extremist. <laughs> but what I discovered, to, somewhat to my disappointment, was that the hammering he took from Hector in 1882 seems to have made him pull his head in, at least with respect to Maori. Because he didn't say uh, the kind of thing he said in 1882 in Parliament afterwards. At times, in fact, uh, I remember one speech, he said, look, Māori at Ōtaki are really suffering. You know, they're dying out in a, in a scandalously swift manner and Parliament needs to do something to stop it. And this wasn't just a one-off, by the way. Um, I've got the relevant bit of John Stenhouse's PhD thesis on Newman here. Newman called for legislative recognition of racial equality in 1884, insisting that the government must give Māori the same civic rights and responsibilities as Europeans. In 1894, introducing a bill to permit women to become members of Parliament, he declared that not to include Māori women would be, quote, simply monstrous. In 1895, he insisted that Māori had, quote, just as much right to aid, unquote, under Seddon's old age pension as, quote, other people. Newman criticised operations of the Native Land Court as detrimental to Māori interests. Neither Europeans nor Māori have any respect for the court, he declared in 1885. He condemned the scandalous way in which Māori were being robbed of their lands by half-castes and European agitators who protracted cases in order to rip off Māori. So, why would you do all of this for a people you despised and thought were going extinct in the very near future? I've got to say, I found Newman's comments on the land court particularly surprising, given his own family owed a lot of their wealth to buying cheap land which had been extracted from Māori using the native land court. And he ends up own, owning at least three farms around the lower North Island. You know, he does, he does pretty well. There are three important bits of context to keep in mind when thinking about Newman's seemingly progressive voting record. First, this is all happening at a time when Pākehā control over New Zealand is not under threat. This is not the 1860s or 70s where large, well-armed groups of Māori could challenge colonial authority. The 1880s, the wars were mostly over. Most of the land had already been taken, and nothing Newman proposed was going to do much to change that. Second, Newman spent virtually all his time in Parliament outside of government. It could be that he was taking some of these positions simply because it gave him a chance to speak out against his main political enemies, Richard Seddon and the Liberal Party. Third, and maybe most significantly, the Māori MPs who served alongside Newman did not see him as an ally. If they say anything, it's critical. They don't forget the kinds of things that he said in 1882. They are openly critical. So, 
was Alfred Newman a wolf in sheep's clothing, who only voted for seemingly pro-Māori policies to keep up appearances and win the approval of his peers? Possibly. But there is another event which might explain some of why Newman pulls such a U-turn in his public attitudes towards Māori. Sometime towards the end of the 19th century or early 20th century, Newman ditched his old theory, which put Māori at the bottom of a racial hierarchy. And he replaces it with a new theory, which puts Māori much closer to the top of that racial hierarchy. This theory these days is referred to as the Aryan Māori myth. So the first part of the myth got started back in the 17th century, and it goes a bit like this. Way back in the mists of history, there was a race of people called the Aryans, who lived high in the mountains of Central Asia. These Aryans were so superior to all the other races that they conquered all their way across ancient Europe. Descent from these supposedly superior Aryans was a big part of the justification for white supremacy among racial scientists. And you're probably aware that in the 1930s and 40s there was this Austrian guy who used the idea of an Aryan master race to justify the murder of millions and millions of people. What you might not be aware of is that long before Hitler turned up, there was a New Zealand spin on the Aryan myth. In 1885, a public servant and amateur ethnologist called Edward Tregear published a book called The Aryan Māori. Using comparisons of language and religions between Indians and Polynesians, he claimed to have proven there was another group of adventurous Aryans who'd travelled east rather than west. Eventually, they sailed out into the Pacific Ocean, becoming, you guessed it, the Polynesians. Tregear's book was ridiculed at first, but over time his theory steadily gained followers in Aotearoa, including Alfred Newman. In 1912, Newman published his own 300-page book on Māori Aryanism, titled Who Are the Māoris? Newman claimed this book conclusively proved the route of the Great Migration from the banks of the Indus to New Zealand. It actually implies that the British and the Māori actually have much closer origins and are more equal than it would appear he believed in 1882. It sort of bumps them up the racial hierarchy a bit. Precisely, precisely. I asked Professor Georgina Stewart about this, about Newman's conversion from seeing Māori as doomed inferiors to Aryan near-equals. Professor Stewart is a professor specialising in Māori philosophy, education and science at AUT. Really, when you think about it, those two ideas are completely incompatible with each other, but both of them do serve the larger and I think the uh, key theme of British colonisation of this country, which was the assimilation of Māori. Because whether or not Māori died off and so no longer existed, or turned out to be actually another form of Europeans, both of those ideas work towards the overall political aim of Britain to annex and really get Māori land ownership out of the way. And this whole idea of Māori Aryanism didn't just give Pākehā an excuse to seize Māori land. It also encouraged Pākehā to see Māori culture as their own culture. Historian James Belich puts it like this in a paper on the history of Māori Aryanism. Popular culture freely co-opted Māori symbols, initially with little sense of their having living owners. Pākehā hockey teams and children were given Māori names. Māori motifs featured large and public competitions to design national emblems. Pākehā musicians and artists in the decades around 1900 were fascinated by Māori subjects, as was the country's leading woman photographer, Margaret Matilda White. Her fascination with Māoridom led to her most disturbing image, a self-portrait with a moko painted on her chin. As Professor Stewart pointed out, a lot of this stuff feels kind of familiar. 
with uh, everything from Radio New Zealand through to everything else being given Māori names. And, and one wonders sometimes the point. You know, I said to someone the other day, you don't know anymore whether a conference is a Māori conference or not because everything's got Māori names. But there are examples of this 19th century version of cultural appropriation which could only exist in the 19th century. For example, taking Māori histories and stories and turning them into old-fashioned Victorian-style epic poetry. Terrible, terrible poetry. Um, And of course, I do have an example for you. Echoes of the gorges deep. Echoes of the winds that sweep. O'er Pirongia's summit steep. Chant the Rangatira's praise. Chant it in a thousand lays. Chant the Rangatira's fame. Chant the Rangatira's name. Teropraha, That was The March of Teropraha by Thomas Bracken. And yes, that is the same guy who wrote the words to God Defend New Zealand. It goes on like that for 18 pages. And the Aryan Māori myth wasn't just popular among Pākehā poets, it also won over some Māori. Maybe most notably, Tirangi Hiroa, also known as Sir Peter Bach. He was a prominent scholar, politician and doctor from the early 20th century. Here's Dr. Aramorata again. He writes a whole book, Vikings of the Sunrise, where the first three or four chapters are all an argument that Māori are like Vikings and that we have European heritage and that we do not have Negroid heritage. So it's, it's this really heartbreaking look at him try to argue for his own humanity, but at the same time, you know, reinforcing the idea that darker peoples are inferior. And so what Te Rangihiroa does is he argues that this amazing feat of peopling the Pacific Ocean, the vastest ocean in the world, um, must have been accomplished by advanced people. They must have been Aryan. So he offers this great accomplishment to white people if only you accept Māori as white. Tirangi Hiroa arguably had good reasons for wanting Pākehā to see Māori as white. It might mean better access to resources and fairer treatment for his people. And while Tirangi Hiroa and Newman might have both bought into the Aryan Māori myth, they disagreed on a lot of other stuff. In fact, Tirangi Hiroa specifically called out Newman, Buller and others in a paper he wrote in 1922 which comprehensively debunked their old doomed native idea. The quick and easy death prescribed by Dr Newman has not been availed of as he led us to expect. Sir Walter Buller's 25 years grace expired in 1909. Instead, Tirangi Hiroa pointed out Māori population numbers had been increasing rapidly for the past two decades. The pendulum has begun to swing in the other direction. The steady increase of the last 20 years shows there's something in the old tribal proverb. We will never be lost, for we spring from the sacred seed, which was sown from Rangiatea. It would be nice to leave you on that triumphal note from Tirangi Hiroa. But of course, scientific racism didn't die out just because the doomed native theory was disproven. In fact, in that very article where Tirangi Hiroa slammed Newman and others for condemning Māori to extinction, he's relying on many of the same old tropes of racial hierarchy. For example, he writes this comparing Māori with other Polynesian peoples. The numerous changed conditions induced by a more vigorous climate caused Māori to shed the indolence of the tropics. A more vigorous and virile people was bred, and when conditions were rudely changed with the 19th century, the Māori was in a better condition to survive extinction than his more easy-going kinsmen in Polynesia. As for Alfred Newman... His book on Aryan Māori was his last attempt at dabbling in racial science, or at least publicly. Much of the rest of his life was focused on business and politics. As well as being an MP, he served as Mayor of Wellington from 1909 to 1910. In 1918, when a global influenza pandemic swept across the globe, Newman got a chance to put his long-neglected medical training to use, taking charge of a temporary hospital near what's now the Basin Reserve. Like many doctors and nurses, 
he caught the virus himself and never fully recovered. In 1924, he died from heart failure. The story of scientific racism in New Zealand is not a story of a single individual. It's hard to imagine the history of Aotearoa playing out any differently if Alfred Newman had never been born. He was just one cog in a vast machine of racial oppression. And parts of that machinery are still chugging along today. When I was talking to Dr. Aramurata, I mentioned that bits of Newman's lecture feel like they could have been copied word for word from the kinds of nasty social media comments you see whenever a story about Māori is in the headlines today. Yeah, I'm sure you can check your email inbox after this podcast is released um, and you'll hear many of the same kind of tropes that that will be very reminiscent of of Newman's thinking, I'm sure. Um, But but why why do you think it's so persistent, that this particular idea... Why is uh, why is scientific racism so persistent? Yeah. Well, it's because capitalism requires some form of exploitation, right? So, you know, if we look at the way that our economic system is still structured today, you know, Māori and Pacific people are this kind of buffer of precariously employed people. We welcome in temporary migrants whose labour we can exploit and then we ship them back to wherever they came from. Um, So our economic system is still very much structured along racial lines. Um, And so we still require scientific racism to justify why it is we exploit certain people. Very special thanks to our guests this episode, Dr. Aramarata, Associate Professor John Stenhouse, and Professor Georgina Stewart. If you'd like to read more about Newman or the history of scientific racism in Aotearoa more generally, I've included some links to their work in the show description. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. This episode was produced with help from Justine Murray and executive producer Tim Watkin. Our sound engineer is Phil Benge. Our voice actors this episode were Max Toll, John Gerritsen, Jamie Tahana, Simon Dickinson and Duncan Smith. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.